so we've been uh, working through uh, this letter to the church at Ephesus, um, and your Bibles is called Ephesians, and uh, we've been going section by section uh, through this letter uh, to kind of learn uh, a couple different things. One, we begin to see, like, what is it supposed to look like to, to live and follow Christ? Like, that is the most important thing uh, that we learn in this passage, because here's what Paul does. He's He's writing this letter to all these early Christians, and uh, they're, they're, they're brand new to this whole faith, and the church is just being established, and they've got questions. They've got to figure out, like, hey, w- what is the story of Jesus, like, really about? And, and Paul kind of adds layers into their understanding, and then they've got to figure out, like, what does it look like to actually practically follow Jesus uh, in the midst of this and in the midst of their culture? And so we've been looking, each section has been kind of giving us a different angle on, on what it means to follow. Uh, Jesus within this, and this whole chapter 5, and we're still going to be in chapter 5 today, um, but in this whole chapter, uh, Paul's talking about relationships, and so the last few weeks have been centered on relationships, relationships with one another, uh, relationships as friendships, you know, the sacredness of sexuality, um, and then today we're actually going to talk about marriage, uh, um, a, well, mostly about marriage. Um, there's going to be really specifically about men today, um, really. And, um, but because this part of the passage uh, really focuses in on men. Um, but he's been talking about the sacredness of our relationships. And so in each stage of our relationship, no matter if you're friends with someone or if you're coworkers, whatever, that, that at the, the crux of it, at the very core of every relationship that we have is this submission and this understanding that, man, this person is sacred that I'm with right now. Um, and I know a lot of times we don't think that way. We don't, like, we don't go to, to our meetings tomorrow and thinking, you know, this is a sacred moment, right? Um, and I get that. I totally get that. But that is what Paul is pushing us towards, to understand that, man, there's this beauty in our relationships. And in order to really follow Christ, we have to be really good at relationships. Um, and I was thinking about relationships and how hard they are, all right? Um, how many of you guys are currently in or have been in one, like, a hard relationship, right? Like, you might have, like, a, it's like if they're right next to you, like, <laughs> but, but we might have, like, family members, like, some of you are like, like, you know, we have, might have family members that are um, difficult, you know, and it might be just hard. It might be hard to have those relationships, and so, um, but even when you get into more intimate relationships, like, whether that's dating or uh, marriage or, you know, get engaged, whatever, relationships are hard, and so I was going through, and I was, like, reading just some funny things on the internet around relationships, and so um, I wanted to give you guys a few that I read, all right? So here's, here's the first one. It says, before I was married, I had no idea that I was always right. <laughs> or this one, can you not breathe like that? And other romantic things I say to my husband. <laughs> I just remember the time when I was dating a British man, and I was annoyed at him about something, so I deliberately made my tea in the microwave while staring him right in the eyes. <laughs> Friend, how many times does your alarm clock go off in the morning? Me, oh, I don't know. Husband, shouting from the other room. 13, Diane, 13. (laughs) Or this one, this one's kind of funny. Sometimes I hide condiments from my husband by moving them three inches to the left. (laughs) This is probably my favorite one. My wife and I play this fun game during quarantine. It's called, why are you doing it that way? And there are no winners. (laughs) But relationships are hard, right? They are, they're difficult. Um, they take a lot of time. They take uh, a lot of effort. They take um, a lot of maturity to have healthy relationships. And um, one of the things I wrote down this week was that if, if you don't want to mature emotionally, 
you have already decided to have limited and often lifeless relationships. And so that is like, when we think about this, like on the front end, it's like, do I, do I want life in my relationships and in my friendships and uh, when I'm dating? Do I want, do I want like life-filled marriages? And, and Paul was like, he's trying to push people into this understanding of what, what Christ wants for you in your relationships. You know, there's a practical element to what it means to walk in Christ and to love like Christ. And he's like, when we do those things, there are very practical things that build in to healthy relationships. And so uh, one of the main ideas for this morning would be this, that a lack of desire to grow relationally is telling the people closest closest to us we just don't care. And so if I were to go around the room and come to you and say, how are you growing in, like, emotionally? How are you maturing emotionally and relationally? And if you can't articulate that, um, I would say uh, your emotional toolbox is like a phrasing that we use here a lot um, at our church. Your emotional toolbox is very small. And um, Lacey always talks about how sometimes a hammer is good to use, and sometimes you could really hurt someone with it, right? And so you need a lot of tools in your toolbox. Well, if, if you don't want to grow in your relationships, and you don't actually want to learn new ways to grow in your relationships and to mature emotionally, then you might as well just turn to the people next to you that you say that you love and just say, I actually don't care. And so it's important then when we start seeing that, like, man, to follow Jesus then is to deeply care about the people closest to us in particular to love one another in such a deep level. And, and listen, I don't care your age. Like, I don't, I don't care how young or old you are. Um, you, you've got to be able to articulate. You've got to be able to learn. You've got to be able to figure out what it means for you to grow in your relationships and understand that. Um, because if you don't know when something's working, you will have no idea how to fix it when it's broken. And so it's important then um, to figure out, like, what does it mean uh, to grow as an individual and as a couple. I mean, we see this like uh, um, it starts off so often in kind of the Christian church world uh, when people start dating and how unhealthy it can be. And, and then at each stage, it continues to grow. And so when I was thinking about marriage um, this week, this is what I was thinking about with the church, that the model of marriage within the church seems to reflect culture more than it does Christ. You know, part of the reason the church has lost um, its ability to speak into uh, sexuality or sex or marriage or whatever is because the truth is um, it's not as uh, within the church it's not as different or set apart as we think it is sometimes it is now technically yes statistically it's better than someone who's not a believer um, almost in every area it is a little bit better if you're uh, a Christian but it's not as big of a gap as you think it would be when we're saying we follow the risen Savior that has completely reshaped our lives, the way we love, the way we forgive, the way we show grace, the way we interact with one another. You would think that the separation between those that say they follow the risen Savior versus those that don't, like relationally, it should be, like people should be like, whoa, you must be a Christian because of the way of your relationships are, like that's clearly like you're into that Jesus thing. It should reshape our relationships at that deep of a level. And so what I also realized in today's sermon is that I'm not, I might be 
like opening a can of worms here for some of you guys, and where I might be picking a scab or actually causing a cut. And so um, I'm not going to get to everything today, and, and we're going to do a, a podcast episode uh, this week. I'm kind of like talking further about some of these things because I do think there'll be some questions off of what I shared today. And, um, and you can send those questions in to us, like info at hillcityrva.com. We love uh, getting those questions. But um, this week we'll put out a podcast episode on our Stay Curious um, podcast and uh, around kind of doubling up on some of this material. Um, but I do want us to start kind of with some background and context before we enter into this passage in Ephesians 5, um, just as a reminder. We have, we reminder that, that at the beginning of this chapter, Paul actually talks about that um, we're supposed to walk in the way of Christ, like walk in the love of Christ. He talks about that in verse 2. And then in verse um, 18, he says to be filled with the Spirit, all right? So these are the markers of like following Christ being a Christian, and like that's what shapes our relationships. It's like walking in the way of, in the love of Christ, and then being like fully submitted and fully uh, filled with uh, the Spirit in our relationships, and that begins to reshape everything. And so in these, in your typical home in the Roman culture, and they had like these household codes, and in these codes, um, they were like mini empires, so to speak. And so they were built on subordination, all right? So uh, the idea was that the men uh, were like kind of Caesar in the home or emperor in the home. And, and then everyone else, were, they were subordinate to all of that. And then if you broke that subordination, that you were ruining the home and that you were, that you were ruining the culture that was there. And so men were protectors. They were providers. They were the strength of the home. Uh, women... Um, it was more of like a marriage was like, a, well, for men and women, marriage was more of a social contract. It wasn't based on love. And so for men, it became about wealth and continuing on the family. For women, it was actually security and financial dependence. And um, it actually would keep women out of slavery and out of prostitution. And so marriage became, that's what marriage was. It was that's how it was viewed in Greco-Roman culture. Sure, could you occasionally get people that were in love? Yes. Right, but primarily, this is what marriage was. It was a social contract, and um, it wasn't based on the love. And so for women, it was like you had to get married. Like there was no uh, Mary Magdalene and, and like all the women like seeing all the single ladies. Like that just wasn't a thing. They weren't like, they weren't proud, independent women. That wasn't like a thing. And so, um, but we begin to, to see that, man, what Paul's about to do is, is pretty powerful on how he talks about marriage and what he's trying to do um, with the household uh, codes. And so um, today really is more about men. Um, we're we're going to see this in this passage. He puts a lot on men. And, um, and I'm not going to be like too harsh um, because here's what I realize about a lot of men. Um, uh, you're starting at a deficit. Here's what I mean. There are very few men in this room, very few, um, that can say, my dad sat me down to talk about emotional health. My dad sat me down to, like, this is what it means to be emotionally mature and to grow into a man. That might, like, very few of us, right? Like, it's, it's you just don't, like, the amount of men I've talked to over the years, it's rare to have men do that. And then if you go a generation older, like the boomers in the room, like you may be Gen Xers and boomers, you, you go to that next level. I don't know that I've ever met a man that said, like if they're in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't know that I've ever met a man that was like, yeah, my dad like really sat me down and talked about emotional health and like what this means. And so what we're going to get into today is I realize that kind of culturally, oftentimes men start from like a weaker spot. Now listen, 
There's also a lot of us men who can look at our dads, right, and be like, oh, no, but I saw this in them, and this was great, and this was so, I get all that. There's a lot of positives there, too. But when we start getting into this relational element, we see that quite often men start off a little bit behind here, and I understand that, all right? So women, I'm not saying you get off scot-free today, but here's a live picture of women for today's sermon, all right? So <laughs> let's get into Ephesians 5. Here we go. Starting in verse 21. It says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's where all relationships start. Every single one for men and women. All relationships start with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so when we think about submission, it's to love, it's to honor, it's to respect, to have a humility with one another. Um, it's this idea of I want to place myself under one of the practical ways that we talked about. It was this idea of saying like, hey, to submit to one another is to continuously ask, what can I do to help, all right? So that's one way to kind of practically think about it. So that's the way we begin to process all of our relationships. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And that's what we're going to talk about today um, because I skipped it last week and you guys were mad. And so um, of which he is the Savior, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. So I want to talk about this idea of headship. And I want to, um, because quite often you can imagine when a passage like this is read, that someone could take this passage out of context. Someone could take this passage and say, um, this is how, like, patriarchy starts. Like, this is how misogyny starts. Um, this is how, like, this idea of men's dominant over women starts, right? You can, you can just cherry-pick a passage, and you can be like, see, I'm the head of all women. First of all, it doesn't even, even if, even if, even if this is about authority, which it isn't, and I'm going to explain that in a second, even if it were, it's not like it's saying that all men, that all men are authority over all women, Right? It's not saying that. This is specific to a home, first of all. Now, is it talking about authority? Is this actually saying that the man is the head of the home? Is that what it's actually saying? Some people might say yes. Um, the majority of scholarly work would say no, that's not what it's saying. Um, that the idea of the man being the head of the home um, with, with this passage in particular, it's not actually pointing to that. Um, that it's a stretch. It's a stretch to get there um, biblically and through the translation of what they're doing here, even contextually. And so we begin to see like, oh, hold on a second, then what is Paul actually saying with this, this word head? So I want to like highlight this. So when we think about this word head, there are three options of what it could mean, all right? Um, it could be a literal head, all right? feel like everyone probably knew that. But it could be literally just a head, someone's head, all right? It could be source, all right? So when you think about source, um, think about the start of a river, right? There's a source for that river, okay? Um, and and that, that source is typically what this word means. And then the other idea is prominence, all right? So prominence just meaning like this most well-known, and so we begin to look at this. Um, there is a word for head that Paul could have used that meant authority and leadership. He did not use that word. It's a whole different word. 
So then there's this word that he used that is actually almost always, always used for this idea of the source. And so it's actually not about authority. Um, it's not that the man is the head of his wife, meaning the authority over his wife or the authority over the home. And so all of a sudden, this language starts like feeling a little bit different. And then you see in context, because Paul's been talking what? About mutuality and, and submission before this. And so authority doesn't even make sense in this context. And so Paul's trying to like, get us to understand that there's something far bigger going on here that he's trying to pull out of men in particular and trying to get them to see that there's something that you need to understand when it comes to relationships. And in particular, as husbands, you might be saying, well, I'm not a husband. Well, well if, if you're a man and you want to be a husband someday, this still applies to you. And it's like, all right, well, then, and then how do we begin to see this? And what is it, what's Paul actually getting at when he gets in this mess? So he continues on here in verse um, 25, and he says this, that husbands love your wives just as, right, just as Christ loved the church. And you start thinking about that for a second, and you're like, whew. He quickly got away from the authority thing, if that's what you thought it was about. It's like, man, just as Christ loved the church? Wow. He says, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her uh, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So I want you to see something. What Paul does here is it's, well, let me read the last part before I get to that. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I want to go back. Oops. I want to go back here for a second in verse 25, because I want you to see what Paul's doing here that is actually pretty fascinating. Um, he flips all the language that typically would have been going on during this time. So he takes this language and he uses it in an interesting way. All of the things that he describes for a man to do, it's all feminine language. Writers never did this, ever. So he takes this language and he, all the things that are for women to do in the household codes at that time, he gives it to men. It's this idea of like washing and cleaning and that kind of language. And it's like, man, those are all the things that, that women did in the home. And so he uses this language. And he goes, let me flip all of this. And let me tell you your responsibility as a man and as a husband. And then he does something even like equally as bizarre. And we'll get to this part in a second. But he flips the language and he says, and to the women that you're hearing this, you're the man's body. And all of a sudden puts them in the masculine language. And it's like, what is he doing? Like he's, he's doing something that's like incredible. Incredible, and it's nuanced, and it's powerful what he's doing. And he's speaking to something that in the culture of that time that people would have been listening to this, and they'd have been like, what are you doing, Paul? No one's going to listen to this. No one's going to care about this. And, and Paul writes it in this way because here's the thing. 
if you really want to walk in the way of Christ, you will care. And Paul's like, let me, I'm flipping all this relationship, relationship stuff completely upside down. Even in the way he talks about there in verse 30, I'm sorry, in verse 31 where he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He's talking, uh, it's not just about sex though, but it is about sex too. And, and this is a little crude what I'm about to say, so just bear with me. But in Greco-Roman culture, um, what, what would happen is when a, a man penetrated a woman, um, it, was a, it was a moment of shame for the woman. It was a moment for um, a way for a man to show his dominance over a woman. And so in that moment, here's what Paul's actually doing. He's saying, here's what's going on culturally, but let me tell you this. This is when two people become one mutually. So he's redefining even the, the way that people thought about sex right there and there. And he's going, it's two people becoming one. It's not men showing dominance over a woman. Or it's not a woman being ashamed because of what just happened because something was taken from her. He's like, in marriage, here's what happens, man and woman coming together. Then, then when that happens, it's two people becoming one. And so he changes the entire definition of sex in that one line and what it's supposed to be. And that sex then becomes about mutuality between two people. And so he also does something fascinating. He's like, he's pointing back to the beginning of the Bible when this story happened into creation. And the reason why he's pointing all the way back to creation is because he's saying this, hey, listen, sin fractures everything and sin fractures our relationships and sin actually distorts the way we view one another. But in Jesus, he restores everything back the way it should be. And so he brings it back to creation. So this is a powerful, powerful, packed, like little section that he is, he's kind of articulating to the men and the women that are listening to it. And so we take a step back for a second, then we, got, then we have to ask ourselves, well, all right, well, what does it mean to be a godly husband? And what, what is Paul actually pointing to here? And so here are a few things I want you to see. One, he's talking about that a godly husband is humble. Humble. Um, when we're humble, we think about this element of like, man, humble people are always curious about like others, right? Humble people are always wanting to be learners. Humble people are um, always willing to sacrifice. Humble people are, they're realizing kind of their place in this world. Arrogance and pride is not a thing because they see their life as being lived for something far bigger. And so there's a humility that is supposed to be there for all husbands. And their wives should be able to look at them and say, man, what a humble man you are. And, and think about this, that the, the men that are, are, are being, that are trying to, the husbands that are raising kind of the next generation of men, what are they trying to pump into them? Humility. Now here's what Paul's not doing. Paul's not saying you can't be strong. Paul's not saying you can't be competitive. Paul's not saying you can't be a protector or a provider. Paul's not saying any of those things. He's, he's saying you can be those things too. But he's like, man, you're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to be a man of great humility and a defining characteristic. But isn't it interesting what gets propped up so often? I mean, people can get elected on this stuff, like of being just prideful, right? And dominant. And, and like, you can, get, you can work your way up a corporate ladder being that way. 
But Paul would say that, like, no, when we are mutually submitting to one another, when we love people like Christ loved the church, there's a level of humility um, that is laced within us. The second thing of intentionality to flourish. Um, there's a great book um, called uh, The Intentional Father, um, as written by John Tyson, which is just awesome. And um, this idea of you have an intentionality in your life. You have an intentionality of the way um, that you're trying to um, help your wife reach her fullest potential. There's an intentionality of the way that you parent your kids. Um, in chapter 6, Paul actually says to the fathers, hey, don't exasperate your, your children. And so Paul would say, man, there's intentionality the way that you're raising your sons and your daughters. It doesn't just happen. There, there's intentionality that we begin to see to, to nurture gifts, to sacrifice time. Um, there's intentionality where we begin to, to see, like, uh, even in parenting, right? Um, it isn't just up to the wife to parent. And that the dad comes in and does discipline. It's like, no, there's an intentionality to the way we begin to parent. Um, there's intentionality with husbands and wives that, like, your time is not more important than her time. And so there's this intentionality to the way we begin to approach our relationships. And we start thinking this through. It's like, oh, wait, no, I don't get just to have guy time. Like, she gets to have girl time too. Oh, this might be a season because it's really hard and, and she's working as well that, like, I have to sacrifice something and rather than her doing all the sacrificing. There's an intentionality that the, the wife ends up feeling like, wow, he is creating space for me to truly flourish. Can you imagine um, if, if this was translated in, in, in like our, our men and our women in, in churches were like raised on this way of thinking, don't you think dating would be a little bit different? And the way we engage relationships would be a little bit different? And then when you head into marriage, it's a lot a bit different? And so we begin to see things very differently. There's a, you're an advocate of spiritual growth, right? Um, to be an advocate of spiritual growth means that you too need to want to grow in your, in your faith. So it's you're advocating for your wife to grow in her faith and for um, your kids to grow in their faith, of course, if you have kids. But you too have got to grow in your faith. Your wife may be sometimes steps ahead of you, right? That can happen. But you are, you are, your trajectory is one of like, I'm growing as well. You're, you're an advocate. For, you're, you're, you're helping lead the conversation around like when, when the conversation is like, hey, what should we do this weekend? And you think through, it's like, well, we have church on Sunday. Like that's like part of the conversation. Why? Because you're an advocate for spiritual growth. When discipleship signups come up, hey, we should sign up for that. Well, it's too late now. They're all full and we close it. But like, hypothetically, it's like, we should sign up for that. Oh, there's community groups going? We, we should go do that. What, you're advocating for spiritual growth. And the last one, you're more than what you do. You're more than what you do. When we take on the identity of Christ and when that becomes the center point, um, quite often men take their value and their identity in, in, in what they do and what they've accomplished. Um, but we take our identity in Christ. And if we walk in Christ, then we're more than what we do. And so what we do then isn't our identity marker. Being in Christ actually is. Now let me say this. Um, 
in defense of, of women, kind of culturally, um, you can imagine how exhausting it can be if those things aren't present. You can imagine in marriages, you can imagine in dating, or like when they're trying to find like a godly, what could be maybe a godly husband, you can imagine how exhausting it is when these things aren't present in men. This is a high calling to, to be a man. So when someone says, what does it mean to be a man? I would just point to this. This is what it means to be a man. Yeah, again, like I, I do believe that, that there's, a, there's a piece of this that like man is a protector of the, the family and stuff like that. Yeah, do I think that? I do. But man, it's just interesting like the level to which Paul raises all of this stuff and saying like this is what a godly husband looks like. This is what manhood really looks like. And what we receive from culture is not it. It's not it. And so it could be exhausted, exhausting for um, women. You can be exhausting when there's no emotional or spiritual maturity happening. It's exhausting. It could be exhausting when there's no mutuality around this, when, when even when, like, in, into marriage, it's like, man, that their sex lives become, there's no mutuality. There's no kind of serving one another. It's exhausting. And that's why relationships become so hard and become so fractured. Now, I do have a little bit for the women, okay? For women, I would actually say when we're looking at this passage, do I think actually on the front end that Paul might write this a little differently uh, than he, he did here? Probably because culture has changed, right? Like right now we're seeing, um, did you know right now the first time in American history there are more women working than men? Um, right now the gap in education, um, it's, 60, it's 62% of college students are female. 38 are male. And that gap is actually growing yearly. Um, the rate to which women are becoming vice presidents and senior leadership roles is the fastest growing. Now, we, we're, it's not close to equal, but it's the fastest growing it's ever been. And it is within reason that within the next decade or so that it could be borderline equal. All right, so some, Paul might write some of this a little bit differently. But I do think there's some things here even for women that I would like to just quickly highlight. One, when he, um, when he, he says that, he, when he switches the language and he says that, that the women are the male, men's body, here's what he's also saying, that you are strong, you're a warrior, he's using athletic language. He's applying that to women. And he wants women to know like how strong you are. And what that means for a woman to hear. And even though culture might try to beat you down like it did back then, he's like, no, you're, you're strong. There's a fierceness to who you are. And that, that deeply matters. Um, I think when he starts talking about this idea of like you must respect your husband and everything, it's this whole idea of like to keep a soft heart. That a wives, you keep a soft heart. Um, to, to single women, you keep a soft heart. Imagine the shift that was happening culturally when Paul's like speaking on this. Like, I mean, it's radical, radical as possibly could be. And so you can imagine like a wife is sitting there being like, oh yes, Paul, I'm all in. And the guys and all the men are like, I've never heard this before, right? So it's going to take some time. And so I would say this, like, yeah, like times are a little bit different right now, but keep us soft, 
heart. To wives, I would say the idea of respect too, like do you still love cheerfully? Understanding what what that means. Um, I would also say this, um, a wife should not submit to something that isn't of Christ. And so again, when we think about some of this stuff within marriage, and we start seeing all of this like a little bit differently. And so now what Paul is saying, that in the home then, it's not based off, like roles aren't based off of gender, meaning like authority in the home isn't based off of gender, it's based off of giftings. And so he's like, because like, listen, sometimes a wife is a better leader than the husband. I've sat in some of the sessions where I've seen like, oh, the, the wife is actually the stronger personality. She actually makes more money. She's the provider of the family. And she's a stronger leader. And so we begin to see like, all right, well, in that case, it's like the husband, then what does that look like? Well, like, I, wanna, I wanna, want her to flourish. And I want her giftings. And the same way the man has giftings. And in mutual submission to one another, respect to one another, you build up those giftings. And so the home becomes a place where we're like uplifting and elevating one another in their greatest giftings, and that's where we all flourish together. And so Paul is like changing everything. And, and why do we do it together? Because of reverence for Christ. And with this thought, emotional and spiritual maturity doesn't happen by accident. Um, when someone asked me, um, what is a bib- <laughs> like, they're like, hey, what do you wish for for every single marriage? And I was like, I wish for what Ephesians 5 talks about for every single marriage, that it would reenact the gospel message of Jesus Christ to people around them. That when people saw like, marriages that, of Christians, like their first thought is about like, oh man, I see what Christ did for you. But that's what it's supposed to be like. Listen, I get it. There are a lot of kind of, yeah, but what ifs to this? What if my husband doesn't want to? What if my husband isn't interested? What if my husband, right? Or what if there's a brokenness? What if my wife doesn't? What if my wife is like neglecting? What if my, you know, I, I get all those questions. And we're going to talk about that in our podcast. But this is the starting point. This is the place where we, we this is the idea and the, the ideal Paul is placing before us of what marriage is supposed to look like. The people should look at followers of Christ and they should say, wow, your marriage reenacts the story of Jesus. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if that were true for all of us, there would be a large separation between those that follow Jesus and those that don't when it comes to marriage and relationships. If we just look radically different. I get it. We've all got room to grow. We've all got areas to repent of and confess of and places that we've got to move towards emotionally. But man, if we really care, if we really care about loving one another, mutually submitting to one another, then this isn't even optional, right? We do it. So when everyone bow their heads, we're going to sing one more song here and... Um, I just want us to pause because my hope is, is that God's just speaking something to your heart. An area of growth, um, a place you need to confess, repent, 
This is for all of us, not just the men in the room. So God, I pray this morning that we would want to be people who um, want to model what it looks like to love one another well in every friendship. Anytime we're dating, whether we're engaged or married, as parents, that we would want to submit to one another out of reverence for you. God, I want to pray... um, for the women in the room that have been hurt or have been broken or have been burned in some kind of way that they realize the strength that you have in them. That um, that they would have soft hearts. I pray that um, for all the men in the room, it's not about guilt. Um, but that there's a high calling to be a man. A man that truly follows after you, a man that is vulnerable, a man that um, desires to spiritually grow, a man that wants to be emotionally healthy, a man that deeply cares about loving people well. and willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that that happens. I pray that the men of Hill City would not cower away or back down from a challenge like this, but would rise up in significance, to rise up in a way that, to show what real masculinity is like, and to a man that deeply follows and loves Christ, that lives his life in the ways of Christ. God, I pray the words of the song that we're going to sing about how you redeem the whole creation, which includes all of our relationships. That we accept a message like this because you're a God who rose from the dead that allows your spirit to work through all of us so that we can love one another like you want us to just like you loved the church we give this to you in your name we pray amen will you stand and sing this last song